Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see uh, all of y'all. So glad to have you. You know, Memorial Day, you just, you never know if anyone's going to show up. I, I always think it's just going to be me and the 12 disciples down front here. So I'm grateful uh, to have a, a, a full room. Really great to see you guys. Want to say hey to our folks in the sanctuary who are tuning in. And right now, I know we've got folks that are tuning in from all of our 30A campuses down in Florida. So grateful uh, that you're turn, tuning in and Excited to continue this series we've called The Race. We're getting near the end. Uh, we're, we're in the last chapter, Hebrews 13, today, and we're going to begin uh, this chapter looking at verses 1 through 6 today. Excited about kind of rounding the last few laps here on uh, this race. This last week, we invited some counselors from one of the local agencies that we uh, use for a lot of our counseling here at Johnson Ferry, they came to address our ministerial staff, which is a team of uh, wonderful men and women who helped to lead uh, this church. And they were talking to us about anxiety, largely because so many people are plagued by uh, anxiety in lots of different ways. And how do you minister to that? How do you think about that? What's the Bible have to say about that? So we had just a, a really great conversation, and we had experts that talked about anxiety with children and with adults and with teenagers. And they talked about how generally our impulse towards anxiety is avoidance. That's the natural impulse. When we come up against things that give us fear or worry, we tend to want to avoid them. And the, the irony is that every time you avoid them, the next time you do it or face it, it gets harder and harder. So the more you avoid it, the harder and the bigger it becomes. And I love this one line that one of the counselors said about working with teenagers, especially in their tendency to avoid difficult things. And, and she said this, I, I want to help you get to the place where you can do hard things. I, I love that phrase, do hard things. I think in general, we learn so much when we go through hard things. And, and on a weekend like Memorial Day, it's an important weekend to thank uh, so many who, who did the ultimate hard thing, given their life. Uh, and I think about the men and women uh, who sacrificed their life. What a hard thing to do for them, for their families, in order that uh, our country could have the freedoms that we have. So it's an appropriate weekend to just reflect on, on hard things. And certainly, as followers of Jesus, we are often called to do hard things, by that, I mean we are called to, to go against the grain, to swim upstream. Do you know, you know that phrase, swim upstream? You know where that comes from? Yes, somebody said salmon. You can see a picture over here. Uh, that's a sockeye salmon for all you salmon aficionados out there. But if you studied salmon, it's fascinating that most of them in adulthood live in salt water, and then they swim upstream back into fresh water to lay their eggs, going against the current. And the reason they do this is because it is of their nature. This is how God made salmon to operate. Now, when we talk about our nature as human beings, we know that the Bible says that we're born with a sinful nature. We're, we're born not wanting to do the things of God. But as a Christian, we are given the Spirit of God, and our nature begins to change. Yes, we still sin, but our desires change. Our wants change. And, and God wants us in our nature to swim upstream many times, doing hard things to accomplish his purposes. Hebrews was written to a bunch of people going through a hard time, 
being asked to do hard things. Now, I know that for a lot of you, you've been with us in Hebrews, but I know today we have some folks that have never been to Johnson Ferry. It's your first time here, so just a little bit of catch up here. Though we're at the end of the book, it's a book written to people whose lives have gotten tougher because they said yes to Jesus. I think there's a lot of people who think, if I say yes to Jesus, then my life's gonna get easier. Sometimes your life gets harder. And in the case of the Hebrews, what we know is that they lost their homes, many of them, because they followed Jesus. Some had been imprisoned because they followed Jesus. We would assume that many had been ostracized from the community. And so I'm sure there's some people who thought, okay, here's what I'll do, here's the remedy. It's really hard to follow Jesus. So even though I grew up Jewish, I'll still do all the Jewish stuff, but inside I know I'm a Christian. So I'm still gonna go to the synagogue. I'm still gonna keep all the temple festivals, sacrifices, but inside God knows I'm really a Christian. And the writer to the Hebrews again and again says that position is not acceptable. So he's calling them to identify with the body of Christ, which means that they are signing up for a hard life. So he's asking them to do hard things. That's what we're talking about today, doing hard things. I want us to look at chapter 13, verses one through six. And in this section of the passage of the, of the whole letter, it, it feels a lot more like a letter. Up until the end of chapter 12, it felt like a sermon. Chapter 13 is filled with a lot of practical do's and don'ts. But we don't want to lose sight of the whole letter and how it all, all works together. So you could go about as far as you want in terms of looking at these commands. Really, the argument probably goes all the way down to the benediction that starts in verse 20. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at some of these commands. I want today to look at Hebrews 13, 1 through 6, thinking about the hard things that he's called us to do. And so if you would, in both rooms and even down in Florida, let's stand together. <laughs> Hebrews 13, 1 through 6. This is what we're called to do. The author here says, let love of the brothers and sisters continue. Do not neglect hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are badly treated since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever abandon you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Let's pray about this. Father, as we open up this word that you've given to us, we pray that you would speak to us in this time of worship. Lord, I believe that you're speaking to every person here. I don't know what they came in here with, what burdens they're bearing, what shame they feel, what anticipation they have for what you're going to say to them. But God, we know that you can speak to all the situations and more. So Lord, would you speak because we're listening. And we'll pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
So before we jump into verse one, I do want to give just a few thoughts about doing hard things. And when I talk about doing hard things, I, th I think we need to understand the value of doing hard things. And then also I have a, well, just a little bit of a caveat for those of us who live where we live right here in East Cobb and North Atlanta. But let, let's talk first of all about why we should do hard things. Just a general primer here to, to this idea. Number one, the reason is that they push us out of our comfort zone. We often get stuck in a rut. We often get stuck in kind of the path of least resistance. We like comfortable things. And God often wants us to do hard things. And hard things have a way of pushing us out of that which is comfortable to us. And, and when done in the right way for the right reasons, that can be a good thing. An analogy of, of working out helps here. A lot of you go to gyms, a lot of you work out, you run, you lift weights, these types of things. And uh, what's happening physiologically there is that if you, if you work out, you are breaking down muscle fibers so that they will grow back healthier and stronger. That's why you work out. The same is true in, in our life. If we do hard things that feel like they are breaking us down to some degree, they can actually be used to help us to become stronger. And that gets to number two, particularly as Christians, we want to do hard things because they help us to grow in our sanctification. Sanctification is a theological word, it's a Bible word. It means to be set apart for God's purposes. And God often uses difficult things to help us to grow in our sanctification. Now, I've asked you this a number of times, but I'll ask it again. Generally speaking, do you learn more in times of pain or in times of pleasure? Most of us, it's in times of pain, is it not? I mean, I wish it were times of pleasure. God, would you please just give me a million dollars? I just want to prove to you how much I'm willing to listen and, and learn. <laughs> it's usually not when we're given something, it's often when something's taken away. We go through a sickness, we go through a difficulty at work, you name it. That's, that tends to be when we learn. And, and it's in those times where if we are learning and growing, then the fruit of the Spirit is exhibited in a powerful way. The love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, gentleness, the faithfulness, the self-control, th these things begin to, to flow out of our life because we are seeking to grow, being set apart for his purposes. The third thing I want to say about why we do hard things is that they, meaning the hard things, they are intended to help others. A very selfish way of looking at hard things is a hard thing is going to help me become the person I want to be. It may in fact do that, but throughout the scriptures, and particularly today in Hebrews 13, you're going to see that the hard things you're asked to do are not always for your benefit primarily, but for the benefit of others. So generally speaking, we need to embrace doing hard things for the Lord. Now, here's the caveat. I said there's a caveat. Here it is. Uh, we live in the land of overachievement, all right? Right here in East Cobb, North Atlanta, the land of type A people, overachieving people, Generally speaking, and, and you might hear a phrase like do hard things, you think, oh man, there's more I got to do. There's more boxes I got to check, more tasks to put on the list, more things to overachieve. And, and if we're not careful, we can take our cultural values of performance and project them onto God and think that the way you get God to love you and do things for you is that you perform for him. But that is not the gospel. The gospel is not 
you do this, and then God will love you. The gospel starts with God loving you, doing for you in Christ what you cannot do for yourselves, and you by faith accept the grace of his son Jesus by repentance of sin and putting your trust in him. You cannot earn the love of God through your good works. Amen. Amen. You cannot. So don't hear a phrase like do hard things as you've got to kind of white knuckle grip this Christian life and do more and be more disciplined. And now there is a, a, an appropriate place for self-control. It is one of the fruit of the Spirit. But the gospel is about what Christ has done for you, not what you do for God. But once we become believers, we don't need to think that the Christian life is merely just kind of coasting by until we get into heaven. In fact, this text is written to people whose lives has gotten extremely more difficult because they had said yes to Jesus. And so he's asking them to do some hard things. And by that, I mean things that, that are against the grain of their culture. He's asking them to swim upstream. And so when we hear this text today, I want you to hear them, first of all, as commands given to us as the body of Christ to do together. And secondly, I want you to think about how countercultural these ideas are. So there are four areas we're gonna look at today. He gives several things in all of chapter 13, so we're just gonna pick out the first four today. Four areas in which we are being asked to do hard things as followers of Jesus. So let's look at these four areas together. Uh, the first one is this idea of hospitality. Hospitality. Now we're gonna talk about a certain kind of hospitality, but hospitality. And I get that from verses one and two. Verse one is a general statement. Let love of the brothers and sisters continue. So there must have been some love present in the church and he's saying, I want it to remain, I want it to continue. Now it's interesting that he, he does what is, is true so much in the New Testament. He calls us brothers and sisters. It's fascinating to me that when you read the New Testament and the gospels, particularly Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospels, uh, the followers of Jesus are almost always called his disciples, his apprentices, his followers. And, and that's a beautiful word. We use that word all the time, disciple, disciple-making, discipleship. But you go through the New Testament, particularly after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes, the terminology is almost always a familiar term. And by familiar, familial, I mean brother, sister, mother, father. Yes, we're disciples of Jesus, but once we're saved, God sets us into a family. That family is the body of Christ. And he's saying that there should be a love within the body of Christ, a love that is different than the rest of the world. In the early church, uh, they were known for sharing their possessions with one another in the body of Christ. In fact, I found in my study this week a quote by a... Uh, a satirist in the second century named uh, Lucian. I know you're so sick of hearing about Lucian, all his tweets and everything, but this is what he said in the second century. Now, he's not a believer, but he's observing the strange behavior of these believers. And, and this is one of the comments that he makes in his writing. Now, this is from the second century, but he says this. Moreover, their original lawgiver, as God, persuaded them that they should be like brothers to one another, 
Therefore, they despise all things equally and view them as common property, accepting such teachings by tradition and without any precise belief. Now, quick little tra- you know, interpretation of second century writing, and obviously that's translated into modern day English, but he's not saying they despise all the stuff they own, but he's saying they don't have an attachment to it such that they wouldn't share it with one another. And one of the things you see in the New Testament and the first, second century in particular is that Christians largely shared what they had with the body of Christ. Resources, food, possessions, they shared it. Now, this doesn't mean they practiced some modern-day version of uh, a socialism because they weren't relying on a government entity to determine uh, who shares and how they share, but voluntarily, they said, hey, if, if I buy a car, I mean, they didn't have cars, but just think about the illustration. If I buy a car, um, you're my brother and sister in Christ, you can use it too. If we have a house and you need a place to stay, you come stay with us. Hey, we bought food, we're gonna share that food with you. The general principle is that this love means that we share things in common, and the outgrowth of that, I think, is this idea of hospitality. He says in verse two, don't neglect hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Now you go, well, hold on, does that mean like if I pick someone up on the side of the road like it's an angel? Probably not, but maybe, I don't know. Probably not, maybe. I think that is probably a reference to Genesis 18 when Abram and Sarah entertained angels. Maybe that's what he's referring to. I do think that regardless, he's saying that this is the primary way that we, that we love one another, and by strangers, he says, this is also something given to sometimes people you don't know that well. And one of the things that we saw in the New Testament church is that the gospel often spread through the use of hospitality. There are no hotels at this time. If you're traveling, you're, you're gonna have to rely on someone that will say, you can stay at my house. You can eat our food. You can come and sit under our roof at our table. This made me think about someone who has become fairly popular in her writings. I think we have a couple of her books in the bookstore, Rosario Butterfield. I don't know if you know that name. Um, her story is really fascinating because uh, for the first, well, she was, a, she was an English professor at Syracuse University. And not just that, but for about 10 years, she was a very public um, lesbian feminist. And she wrote uh, several articles arguing against what she found uh, to be bigoted Christians. That was her, her mentality, as, as many would have that mentality today about Christians. And a local pastor at a church in the Syracuse area read her article, invited her over for dinner, and said, I'd love to just talk to you about your article. So he and his wife prepared a meal for her, and, uh, and I don't know if her partner came with her, but they came to dinner and little by little, God used the influence of that family and others that she met uh, to help her see the great love that's found in Jesus Christ, and such that a couple years later, she gave her life to Christ. Um, she ended up, in her case, got, got married to a, a man who became a pastor, and they have a wonderful ministry now, um, ministering to people who um, had lifestyles very similar to what she used to have. But she talks about the role that hospitality plays. She has a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Isn't that a great title? The gospel comes with a house key. And this is what she said about, about hospitality. I, I love this quote. She said, Christians have a theology and worldview 
for calling strangers to the table and then sitting there long enough to be both earthly and spiritual good. Christians have a theology of difference and diversity. What trips up Christians is this, too much time waging war with people and ideas on social media and too heavy a, a reliance on church programs to filter strangers, weeding out the creepy ones and bringing to your table the nice and safe ones. This post-Christian world won't stand for this and we shouldn't either. I love this next line. Get close enough to the stranger to put her hand into the hand of the Savior. Isn't that a great line? Get close enough to the stranger to put her hand into the hand of the Savior. Hospitality is not just getting your house looking really nice so that you can impress people that you already like, that already like you, that already believe like you, to come to your house to have a great meal. That is not what it's talking about with hospitality. It's talking about welcoming people, often strangers, or at least people you don't know that well, and seeing that as an opportunity to help them to experience the love of Jesus. Hospitality, how, how you doing with hospitality? That's a hard thing, isn't it? We're thinking, I don't want strangers in my house. That's a hard thing. Hospitality. Number two, persecution. It's just getting more and more positive. Number two, persecution. Verse three, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are badly treated since you yourselves also are in the body. It is so hard for us to get our, our hearts and minds around the fact that in this time, being sent to prison for being a believer was fairly normal. In fact, I believe at the end of, of chapter 13, it talks about how Timothy had just recently been released from prison. You can see that in uh, 1323. Timothy has been released from prison. It, Paul went to prison. Others went, it was a fairly normal thing, and around the world today even. Many people go to prison because they are believers in Jesus. Now, when it talks about remembering the prisoner here, it isn't, it isn't a text that's talking about, hey, there are lots of people in prison today who have committed a very similar crime, some who are in there unjustly, and we need to, we need to minister to them, remember them. I, I think that is a good thing to do. But this text is, is written particularly to people from the redeemed community, the body of Christ, who have been sent to prison because of their faith in Jesus, and the command is to remember them. Now, now, what he means is not just merely, hey, think about them, but in that day and time, the government did not give prisoners three square meals a day. If you were cold, the government didn't provide standard issue blankets for all their prisoners. If you got food, it's because someone brought it to you. If you got a blanket, it's because someone brought it to you. If you had clothes, someone brought them to you. And so he's saying to the church, hey, remember the people in prison. Don't forget about them. Bring them this food. Bring them these blankets. Bring them these clothes. And by the way, the other larger point is that to a people who are thinking, well, I'll just sit in the synagogue but not really identify with the whole Christian thing because, hey, me and God are cool. It's kind of an undercover kind of a deal. What he's asking them to do is, I want you to publicly identify with your brothers and sisters who are in prison. And that was a big deal. Because once you take that meal, everyone sees you taking that meal. And he's asking us to have this incredible amount of empathy towards people who have been mistreated and persecuted. In verse three, he says, remember them how? As though in prison with them. 
those who are badly treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. We need to be reminded today that there are brothers and sisters around our world who are currently, in 2023, being persecuted for their faith. Uh, we have many of our sent ones from Johnson Ferry who go into places where there is rampant persecution. Sometimes to them, largely to the believers that they are able to reach and to disciples, many of them are in prison, many of them lose their jobs, many of them face uh, a lot of difficulty for following Jesus. If you're not aware of some of the issues around the world with the persecution of the church, I wanna give you two great websites that are starting places. You can take a screenshot if you want, that's helpful for you. Uh, the first is the Voice of the Martyrs. The second is Open Doors. Both of these are great websites that give you a glimpse into the persecuted church. Make that a matter of a prayer, something that you think about. Um, that these are people doing hard things for the, for the Lord, and, and there are ways that we can remember them. Maybe we can give to these ministries or even go and serve those who are persecuted. I want us to do something real quick, just as a small gesture of this. I'd love for us to pray, particularly for our John's Ferry Sent Ones uh, right now, who are uh, around the world serving the persecuted, uh, believing people around the world. Let's just pray for them real quick. Father, I just come to you right now and I pray for our sent ones. Lord, you know who they all are. You know all these situations. And Lord, you also know the names of those who are facing much difficulty because they follow Jesus. One, I, I pray that you'd forgive us where we have often forgotten them. And I also pray that you minister to them, Father. I think about Acts 4, that when they were persecuted, they prayed for boldness. God, how many times did we pray for comfort? Lord, they were praying for boldness. So Lord, I pray for boldness for those who are being persecuted. I pray for wisdom for our sent ones to know how to minister and how to shepherd uh, these beautiful people as, Lord, they are mistreated, seeing that their treasure will not come in this world, but in the world to come. God, we remember them, we pray for them, and lead us, God, to do whatever we can do, to have empathy with those who are persecuted. And we'll pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Doing hard things. Hospitality, persecution, next one goes right along with it, marriage. Number three, marriage. I mean, I didn't write it, it's just in there, all right? So... <laughs> In verse four, what's he say? He says, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. I, I will be honest, this seems so random, like marriage, what in the world does that have to do? Well, if you go back to the beginning verse, let, let love of brothers and sisters continue. He wants the church of Jesus to be this place of this radical, beautiful, grace-filled love uh, that starts with our love for and from Jesus that extends to one another. And, and I think this is actually a great point because he's saying that, that sexual love can often be a perversion of godly love. Now, love in the context, even sexual love in the context of God's design is a beautiful thing. An analogy I like to use, it's like a fire. You know, a fire when it's in a fireplace or a fire pit can be a beautiful thing. But a fire put in the wrong place can be a very destructive thing. Sex is the same way. Within the confines of God's beautiful design, sex is a wonderful, beautiful gift. You take it outside of God's design, 
and it can cause a lot of destruction. And I think what he's saying to the church is, if, if you guys start acting like the rest of the world when it comes to sex, then, then you are not exhibiting the godly love and we cannot have a love within brothers and sisters because you are using a perverted version of love in your life. And he says that marriage is to be held in honor among all. Now, all here certainly can't be a reference to the whole world. I know that we would love for God's design for marriage to be held in honor among all. And you see today all these hot button cultural issues that are waging war and, and there's boycotts on Disney and Target and Budweiser and all these things. And hey, if you feel led to do that and you wanna do that, then by all means, use the power of the purse to do that. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but the all here is not a reference to getting lost people to appreciate the things of saved people. It's saying, I want people within the church to honor marriage. And maybe we need to start with the household of God when it comes to honoring God's design for marriage and for sex. I think about a number of examples, even within the church, where we can act like the rest of the world when it comes to sex. Adultery, our addiction to pornography, premarital sex, approving relationships outside of God's design, a culture of no-fault divorce, cohabiting, living together before marriage. I'm trying to offend everybody here. I can keep going. <laughs> you get the point. Uh, in so many ways, we, we have so acquiesced to the world's sexual perversions that often you can't even tell the difference between Christians and the rest of the world when it comes to these issues because we're living like the rest of the world. Now, do Christians still sin? Yes. Do, do Christians still sin sexually? Of course. But that is not our identity. I love what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, do you not know the un, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral there it is, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor those habitually drunk, nor verbal abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I love this line, such were some of you, were. That, that, that was the label of your life, but you were washed. Isn't that good news? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of God, which is a way of saying that even if right now you are trapped in a sexual sin, can I tell you that in Jesus there is a way out? Amen. And that way out is not the, what you think it is. You, you think that the way out of sexual sin is to try harder. How's that working for you? Uh, David Anderson, our men's minister, we we're talking about this. I love this line. He said, he said freedom is not really a, a discipline issue, it's a discipleship issue. Meaning to, to get freedom from the Lord means first of all being honest, taking the mask off, letting people into your life, forming new sacred habits that, the God, that God will use to free you from these addictions, and there is help for you. As a church, uh, we wanna help people. We understand that a lot of people mess up when it comes to this. But because we want marriage to be held in honor, according to Hebrews 13, we wanna help people find freedom 
from sexual sin. In fact, let me just give you two confidential email addresses. Uh, if you email either one of these, they're going to go to a confidential, trusted person on our pastoral staff uh, who would love to help you get free or at least point you towards resources, support groups, possibly meeting together to find freedom from sexual sin. So you can just write those down and, uh, or give them to a friend who you think might need them, and we would love to help you. So how are we doing as a church in the hard thing of honoring marriage? All right, number four, last one, contentment, contentment. Verse five and six, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever abandon you, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Starting backward, I'll just say, he's quoting these uh, Old Testament Psalms. In fact, that last line is from Psalm 118, which is a psalm that they would often repeat in the midst of distress. They say, hey, no matter what's going on in my life, I declare that the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. And then there's like a boast. What can you do to me? And I think he's saying to that to a people who are being persecuted, who are having to say hard, yes to hard things for Jesus. Hey, what, what, honestly, when I think about it, given all that God's done, all that God can do, honestly, what can man do to me? The Lord is my helper. Maybe some of you need to declare that today. Hey, no matter what, no matter what they say, what can man honestly do to me? The answer is nothing. You know why? Because the Lord is my helper. One of the key areas, backing up in verse five, has to do with money. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Money is not evil in and of itself. It is morally neutral. But it is easy to love money. First Timothy 6 says that many people have, uh, have basically fallen in love with what money offers to them, and it has pierced them and caused many to wander away from the faith. So the positive thing here is to be content. Now tell me, how countercultural is that, to be content? I mean, think about it. We, we just live in a culture where people are not content with anything. We, we buy so many, think about how much debt we take on, consumer debt, because we just buy stuff we feel like we need to have, because we're just simply not content with the stuff we already have. So we gotta buy new stuff to replace that. And before long, we buy new stuff to replace the new stuff that we bought to replace the old stuff. And we just, the cycle continues, just because we're not content people. We change jobs all the time, thinking, man, if I jump from this job to this job, then I'll finally be content. We, we change partners and spouses all the time. If I jump from this person to this person, we have this constant FOMO, this fear of missing out, just this constant, this, this, this gnawing thing that, that I'm looking for. And he says, actually, in Christ, one of the hard things, but beautiful things, is to truly be content in the Lord, to love Jesus more than anything else. I want to talk about this a little bit more next week, but I'll kind of prime the pump here. James K.A. Smith has this great line, and he's really a scholar on Augustine. We're going to talk about Augustine some next week. He says this, you are what you love. Remember the rich young ruler? The guy comes up to Jesus. Hey, what, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments. Honor your father and mother. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't covet. And the guy says, hey, I've done all those things. 
but Jesus sees into his heart. And he asked this young guy to do something he didn't ask anyone else to do. And he says, all right, I want you to sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and then come and follow me. And this young man walked away grieving. You know why? He was doing good things, but he loved his money more than he loved what Jesus had to offer. How are we doing with contentment? Are we content people? Or are we constantly chasing happiness in something other than Jesus? I'm so proud of our church for many reasons. One of, one of it is that we have this culture that's growing of sending people to hard places to do hard things. And today, uh, we're going to have a unique opportunity yet again. We've already done this several times this, this year, and we have a couple more this summer. We get, to, we get to send another sent one. Isn't that good news? That's great. Yeah. You can even clap for that. That's good. I'm going to clap for that. All right? That, that's a great thing. That's what we want. We want to have a sending culture. We're sending people to the nations, to hard places, to do hard things, to see God change lives. And today we're going to send another one, and uh, instead of just interviewing her one-on-one, we're going to let her share her story through video. So before she comes, we get to pray for her. Uh, I would love for us to just get a glimpse of what she's going to do and how God has gotten her to where she's going. So let's check this out together. 